This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. And it meant to live like a Corinthian. But praise be to God that he doesn't shy away from the rebels of this world. The truth is, the church in Corinth was wrestling with much of the same things we wrestle with today. Church divisions, sexual immorality, convictional disagreements, what a gathering of believers should and shouldn't consist of, faith in the resurrection, and much more. Again, the Corinthians were rebels, and so were all of us at one time dead in our sins and trespasses, and in desperate need of the good news of Jesus Christ. They needed the transforming power of the gospel to radically change them. And so do we. At the end of the day, we are all rebels transformed. Uh, This week, uh, as last week was planned too, but there was some white stuff that falls from the sky and falls onto our ground that held us back from gathering. Uh, This week, though, we are starting a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church, the first letter that he wrote to them, he wrote multiple letters to them, entitled Rebels Transformed. So before we dive right into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to spend just a moment talking a little bit about the city of Corinth in this first century day that Paul is writing in. He's probably writing this letter in the mid-50s, in the, in the mid-50 ADs, like 52, 53, right, right around that time. And I also want to talk a little bit about what the church was struggling with. So uh, the first century city of Corinth was a major port city. It was very polytheistic. They served multiple gods and goddesses, sex gods. There were Greek and Roman temples everywhere. It was a very liberal, young, hip, economically booming, multi-ethnic area that was the place of Paul's first missionary journey. It was like the place to be. It it was popping. Relationally, things were happening. This was before Christian Mingle or Tinder, depending on what side you fall on. I don't want to talk about it. And and it, it was one of those places that, man, economically thriving, but also, as we heard from the bumper video we created, it was also a a very wicked area in terms of sin, in in the sin that people of that day, in in that culture, were struggling with. Uh, um, So much so, as as you heard again in the video, uh, that again, this was a port city, a major port city. It was one of the most up-and-coming cities in the Roman Empire of its day, and people were living in such wickedness, uh, others had a word to describe what it meant to live in wickedness, and they called that Corinthian, and it literally meant that you are living like a Corinthian. Like, so if someone saw another person living a wicked life, like, man, that's brother's living Corinthian. He, he's living like a Corinthian. Or that sister is living like a Corinthian. And again, Paul spent about 18 months 
in the city of Corinth and led a bunch of people to Christ as a result. And he's actually writing this letter as well with, with another person in the faith named Sosthenes. If you read uh, the first chapter there, you, you'll see that name or read that name. And, and it's really interesting. So you can read about this in Acts 18 as well, a little bit of Paul's time. I think there's 18 verses uh, that really span like 18 months of Paul's journey in Corinth. And, uh, and then also after Acts 18, verses one through 18, like starting in verse 19, I think it is, memory serves me correctly, you also hear about Apollos, uh, who we'll be reading about here in 1 Corinthians 1, another servant of Christ in the city of Corinth. Uh, but Paul is writing specifically uh, to cover five major disputes or areas where the church in Corinth was struggling. Now he covers a little more than these five, but if you were to put uh, five main areas in buckets of why Paul is writing this letter, these are five concerns. These are five, some could say, rebukes and, and cautions that Paul is writing in regards. First, he's writing uh, that there are a lot of divisions amongst the body, and, and he's concerned for the unity of the church. These divisions are like fractions. They are, are rather factions and tribalism. People were clinging to one leader over another, and it, it was just really messy. Uh, secondly, uh, they had some areas, again, around sex and romance that weren't lining up with, with God's standard of living. And, and so Paul is going to call out some, some pretty crazy things that they were doing, which was crazy as we read them. But in that day and culture uh, and in that city, it, it wasn't that crazy. It wasn't unheard of. Thirdly, uh, there are a lot of disputes and differences over convictions on what uh, Christians can and can't do or should and shouldn't do. And so Paul is going to address a little bit of that, uh, such as like, should I eat meat that is sacrificed to an idol? So that they would have meat markets in the area and like certain meat that didn't sell was very possibly sacrificed to an idol. Should Christians purchase that meat for their family to eat? Do we have the freedom in Christ to do that? I ask oftentimes the same thing when I hear about vegan burgers. Like do we, do I have the freedom here, Lord? What is this mystery meat? Kidding, if you're a vegan, I love it, that's great. You're healthier than me, that's for sure. Fourth, the, the church services were a bit chaotic. They, they struggled with, with order in their worship services. They were utilizing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts that God had given them, but they weren't necessarily in order uh, and they were a little reckless with those gifts. I mean, you can imagine right now someone just standing up saying, I have a word from the Lord. And then another brother, I have a word from the Lord. And, and that's a bit what it sounds like it was in this early young church in Corinth. It was a little wild and crazy. And probably the biggest concern in utilizing those gifts is Paul was concerned that they weren't uh, utilizing them in love. And so he, he has a little bit to say about that. And then lastly, some were suggesting that the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus in this day and believing in them wasn't that necessary. Like, what's the big deal? Like, we could just focus on Jesus as an awesome teacher and focus on the things that he taught and the life that he lived. If the resurrection happened or didn't happen or the miracles happened or didn't happen, it's really not that big of, of a deal. And Paul is going to 
um, address that quite, quite poignantly, um, letting them know that, no, the Christian faith hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those are the five key areas. And now you might be hearing some of these issues and problems with the church way back then, almost 2,000 years ago, and in another city, in another land, and you might think, well, praise be to God, Pastor John, that we don't struggle with any of that stuff today. We do. You might not know about a lot of it. You might not hear a lot of it. But let me tell you, we do, and it fleshes itself out a little differently nowadays, perhaps, but we struggle with a lot of this stuff. We can relate with a lot of this. Um, we definitely have some of the same types of problems as a body just because you don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. And secondly, I would also champion this thought. If a church is serious about reaching the lost, in reaching unchurched people who are investigating and considering the faith, I will argue that a church should have some of these, what I'll call rebellious problems within them, especially amongst younger believers or investigating people when it comes to Christianity. People are just looking from the outside in, maybe starting to attend church and like, I don't know about this. I don't know about the resurrection. I don't know all about Jesus, but there's something that's drawing me here. Uh, I would challenge you. Um, we want some of these type of rebellious problems in our church because I think it is actually evidence that we are living missionally focused and outwardly focused and not inwardly focused. Let me tell you a little bit of, of what I mean when I say that. Growing churches with new and young Christians can often have rebellious problems. In churches that are plateaued or dying or more inwardly focused, I would say often have more religious problems. Let's talk about rebellious problems. They often consist of, you know, unchurched people uh, bringing in their baggage and luggage and carry-ons and everything in to the church because they're bringing their whole selves. They're bringing their authentic self into the church. And sometimes church folk, we, we've gotten out of touch with that, like you actually get to come here as you are with all of your mess and stuff you're dealing with. You don't actually have to button up. I'm not gonna button this top button up, but you actually don't have to button up and pretend to be something you're not, okay? And so these are like rebellious problems. Let me give you one example of a rebellious problem, and I've had this question come up a couple of times with young Christians to me. Rebellious problems could consist of something like, hey, Pastor Jay, that's what the cool kids call me. Hey, Pastor Jay, is watching porn really bad? Like, is it really bad for you? Like, I don't get it. We all have these urges and never temptations and everything. It's, or not even temptation, but we just, like, th that person, I'm not harming them. Is it really a bad thing? Like, I've had that discussion, man, for the last 15, 16 plus years with people, especially young men. It's like, are you sure it's bad? Can you show me where God says that? And so we do. These are rebellious problems. 
Secondly, and I haven't specifically um, dealt with this, but I actually know people who have dealt with this type of problem. Like, um, hey, uh, me and my wife are considering like an open relationship. We're married, but it's loose. Um, and we just actually became members of a church. Um, shouldn't be a problem, should it? Okay, we gotta talk, right? <laughs> rebellious problems, rebellious problems. And then there are religious problems. Religious problems often consist of everyone having the same political convictions. We have to look the same, we dress the same. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, you know, where it's like, man, you guys are like the same. You know, we're, we're in the same economic area and, and stance, and we kind, of, we kind of do everything the same, and we kind of focus inwardly, and we think of the world as the, like the, those other people outside of the church. I shouldn't just say the world. Uh, that's a bigger theological term, but those people outside of our church, they're actually the problem. And the, and the fact that they're not coming here has nothing to do with us not reaching them. It's because they're so rebellious that they just, they'll never love God. They're the issue with our world and our country today. And oftentimes, if I can just be candid with you, these religious problems stem more about us wanting it our way and caring less if the church dies as a result or the mission of Christ is not moved in our particular area. And it cares way more about us having the things we want and the people that we want that look like us, talk like us, dress like us, act like us, vote like us, fill in the blank. Those are religious problems. And so here, the book that we're gonna be going over for the, lot, for the next several months, tell me when we're stopping, I don't know. Uh, last week kind of messed everything up. I had some light plans on a calendar and I was like, well, I gotta switch that, we're teaching that. And so we'll probably be over for the next three months or so in 1 Corinthians, then we have some series and some standalones planned in between. So yeah, treat it like a Netflix season one episode right now. We might pause for a little bit and we'll hit you with season two a little later, but we're going through this book for the next several weeks and several months one way or another. Um, we're, we're gonna do some diving into this young church that had some very rebellious problems, but you need to know as well, you too, at one time or another, when you were darkened in your sin and blinded to the goodness of God, you too had some of these either same issues or very similar, and even after proclaiming Christ as king, you probably still wrestled with them or still do wrestle with them when push comes to shove. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 12. This is really where we're camping out for most of our time, uh, but quickly we'll look at some verses afterwards to kind of apply to this thought of church drama. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that term, just know Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means Messiah. It means chosen one. The one who the prophets are pointing to in the Old Testament, in Torah. 
This is Jesus. It's his title. And that name is used a lot, especially in the opening verses in 1 Corinthians 1. I think in the first eight verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned eight times. That all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. Chloe was... um, Scholars believe a wealthy supporter of the church, a believer, a leader in the church. She was a woman, and she uh, was most likely very affluent and blessed. Probably had a home big enough to be able to host a house church. And so Paul was in communication with Chloe and her household, and, and that involves not only potential spouse and children, but also servants and so forth, those who were living in Chloe's home. And uh, Paul says, hey, man, I was FaceTiming with Chloe and her household. And it sounds like there are some issues popping off in the church that I was a part of for 18 months. It says, they've informed me that there are quarrels among you, literally in the Greek there, it's where we get the word schisms. So that there's schisms, there are fractures, there are, are factions and, and breaks and tears among you. What I mean is this, and he's getting the specifics here. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I I follow Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. And then still another, I follow Christ. Let's talk a little bit about, about cliques in the church. So what you need to know about this day and age, and in the 50-some AD that it's probably written in, is in uh, Greek culture, and specifically Corinth culture, that there was uh, what was known as sophists. And these sophists were, were, were people who had the gift of rhetoric. That means the art of speaking well. They were a They were really fluent speakers. They could captivate a room. They could bring followers to themselves with their knowledge and philosophy and understanding of politics and even the gods. And they they would talk about a wide array of topics. And they amassed followers. And it was actually a very affluent business to be a sophist. It was almost to be like today, like I'm a social media influencer, right? People follow me. People hang on every word that I share. It was a big deal in this time. But what would happen in the city of Corinth and over the known world at this time that had sophists, they would cling to a particular sophist, a particular teacher or influencer, And then everyone else, all other sophists, it was kind of like us against them, right? Like the Lions against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Like we're pro-Lions, we're pro-Lions. It was an us against them type of thing. And so this crept into the church because the church is not necessarily separated wholly from the culture that it lives in. And so some were bringing this style and this mantra and this mentality to the Corinthian church, this young, up-and-coming, booming church. 
And so they were becoming pretty clicky as a result. And you can kind of break these types of cliques down into like two major buckets. There were theological cliques, and then there were like personality cliques. So theology or theological cliques um, were stuff like how should we hold to Old Testament laws? Um, Should should us Gentiles have to then circumcise all of our boys and children? Like, what? How do we do that? And some wanted to stick closer to the laws than others wanted to, and so that there was a bit of confusion there on what we ought to do and how do we interact with the world around us? Can we or should we eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? All of that type of stuff. These were like theological cliques, and so people would find themselves in one camp or the other around these issues. Some could say that's a little bit like denominations today, okay? And then, and we'll spend a little more time on this, there were these personality cliques. And again, that kind of goes back a little bit to the sophists. There are three primary teachers here who seem to be extremely instrumental in the early stages of the church in Corinth, Paul, obviously, and then Apollos and Peter as well. And you were having these cliques, and then there's this fourth clique that Paul mentions, like Team Christ. Like, no, 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 like all those dudes, forget those. Like, I just follow Christ. And so they all had a little bit of a bend to them and a quirk to them, you could say. Some were like, Paul is my dude. Paul's my G, man. He's the dude. He's super theological. He helped to form this church. I love his writings. I am just blessed by the Apostle Paul, therefore I follow Paul. And then you have others who were like, yeah, you know, Paul's a, he's a good dude and all, and his theology's solid, but man, his preaching kind of puts me to sleep. No one ever says that here, I'm sure. Um, Paul actually addresses this thought in 2 Corinthians 10.10. And he says this of what people are saying of him, and it seems like he's like agreeing with them. He says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing, he says in his second letter to the Corinthian church. (laughs) And so there's this idea, and and it holds a lot of historic ground, that Paul probably had some kind of physical ailment as well with him. Uh, Some of the theories are like he he potentially had a, a, a hunchback. And so you imagine, like, Paul, he's maybe this fragile man, you know, with some serious ailments, but he's incredibly wise. He's obviously used by the Spirit tremendously, but in this day and age and in this culture, especially in this city, that's not too trendy. And so there's this other leader who's named Apollos, and and he is from... Alexandria, Acts 18 says. It's the intellectual center in Egypt. And you like, I think like, think Manchester here in the States. Like, I mean, it's kind of like a popping area. Like, man, there's some people who come from Manchester. Like, whoa, okay? And this person, Apollos, um, was more in tune with the culture, perhaps, 
Perhaps he was a little younger. Or perhaps he looked a certain way that fit the culture a little more. Perhaps he understood the culture a little more, and he had good theology. There's nothing against Apollos' theology, but he could actually leave you hanging on every word that he taught and preached. And so some said, no, I follow that guy. That's my Sophos. That's the one I follow. I'm a disciple of him. And then another group is like, no, nah, actually, no, I'm a little more traditional. Team Peter, Team Cephas or Cephas. I'm, I'm Team Peter, the Aramaic name Cephas, as we enunciated in English. And so um, he, he was a little more in tune with the Jewish traditions. Peter was an apostle, really, for the Jews. Not that he wasn't utilized uh, for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people either, but uh, his, his bend was certainly towards the church in Jerusalem and other areas where Jewish Christians were being formed and grown and matured. And so some were like, I'm more traditional. I'm team Peter. Then there's this other group, which is an interesting thing when we look at today's understanding and church world or lack thereof. These were like the anti-establishment people. Like this is a big movement today. Like we're anti-authoritarian. I don't need the church. I don't need large organizations. I don't need anything like that. I, I just meet me and my boy on Sunday, my boy Eddie, and, and we meet at the pub and we just talk about life and liberties and pursuits of happiness that we have, and we talk about how the church is just a mess. These were kind of like the anti-authoritarian crew, and they, they're like, I follow Christ. I don't need leaders, I don't need church governance, I don't need the church, I just need Jesus. And so it's a good thing we've evolved from all of these types of cliques, um, am I right? No, we still do this today, and some of it can be okay, and some of it, if we wanna be honest, can be really dangerous. It can be really dangerous. It's okay to have teachers who you really connect with and you enjoy listening to their teachings. Perhaps there's a way in which they teach that you really, really seem to connect with. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but what we need to be careful of is idolizing people or a particular person or teacher. This is why here, I'll tell you this, this is why here at CRC, we're gonna continue to have a plurality, a, a multiplicity of teachers, we call them our teaching team. We're gonna continue and try to expand that more over 2024 to develop resources and help people out who have the gift of teaching here in our church, and so you're not going to hear me for 52 Sundays. You're going to hear voices of others who God has gifted with teaching and doctrine and the gift of preaching. Um, and so, and that's male and female alike. And so we really wanna take that serious. And, and let me say this, I don't know how word gets out around here. I really don't. It's, it's Coopersville, so I'm sure y'all are into some like, maybe it's, it's 
uh, spread on Coopersville and formed. I have no idea. Um, but like, if you find out I'm not teaching a certain week, and you don't come to church for that reason, like, can, can I encourage you? Like, you need to repent. Like, and, and I'm serious. Like, we are one body in many members, that this church is not led by a single person or a personality. Because if it is, it, it will crumble in the end. So if you find someone else's teaching, somehow find out, because I don't know how it happens, but it happens, um, I encourage you, that should be all the more reason you come that Sunday. Because you need to hear other voices as well and you need to be blessed by others from this body. And there are a lot of them. When I was younger, I, I was in, really like, I don't, I was really infatuated with a particular teacher. I won't share his name. But I'd go to sermonindex.com on my Blackberry. And so you go to Sermon Index. I had a Blackberry at 20. I thought I was really cool. Uh, so I'd go to sermonindex.com, and you could s check sermons by teacher. And so I would like filter teacher and then I'd find this one particular teacher who I loved listening to. And he probably had hundreds of sermons on there or at least a hundred plus. And I would listen to him oftentimes like five plus hours a week. I'd literally put his messages on while I fell asleep after I spent some time in prayer. And I'd fall asleep listening to this one voice. And then, as I was young, coming up, so 21 years old, I preached my first message, I think, and, and I realized I'm sounding a lot like him. Like, I'm sounding a lot like him. I have, like, some of the same convictions he has, and some of that can be okay to a certain extent, but all of a sudden I became convicted that I am idolizing this teacher. And, and that caused me to have to repent to the point where I would come to church on Sunday and some Sundays I'd be like, man, my local pastor here that I'm serving under is nothing like this teacher I've been listening to for five and a half hours during the week. And so I was minimizing the amazing pastor that God had blessed me to serve under and I was really becoming something that was not good. And so even recently, I could just share straight up. Here's a picture. Uh, this is John Tyson. Um, uh, this is a teacher that people here have uh, shown me in, like three years ago, and I've been listening to him, and his teachings have really blessed me. Um, and I was at a, a church conference with one of our elders and one of my mentors and friends in Florida, and and we're there like two years ago, and uh, I see John Tyson walk by. And I'm like, hold it together, man. That's John, and I also thought, he's a little smaller than I thought, <laughs> videos. Or I'm a little bigger than I thought. And so I, I approach him, I say, dude, I just, I just wanna say, dude, your ministry has like ministered to me in ways that I, I don't know you'll ever be aware, that's fine, uh, but I just wanna say thanks, and so we have this like three minute, four minute dialogue, and he's like, oh, Coopersville, man, that's like the, 
Yeah, that's like, everyone knows about Cooper. I'm kidding, he never said that. Um, <laughs> but like, it, it made me think after interacting with them, like, I have to be careful there. Like, because like, I'll listen to some of these teachers, and I, I do listen to uh, a few teachers throughout the week, and I'll listen to them, and I'll be like, dude, I don't have what they have. Oh, and then you can play that like comparison game, and that's dangerous as well. Clicks. So you might have a certain proclivity toward one type of teaching or another, or you might be like anti-establishment, I don't need the church, I, I, don't, I don't trust the church, I don't know what they do with their money, you should come to our family celebration in December, you have a better understanding of that, but um, you, you might be a little more anti-establishment, or you might be one who tends to be a little more clicky towards one teacher over the other, but let me encourage you, friends. We are the body of Christ. My right arm, or rather my left arm and hand, does not envy my right arm and hand because it can throw a lot faster because I happen to be normal and I'm a right-hander. Some of you southpaws can't relate with that. But together as the body, we just function and we should be spurring one another on instead of getting in factions and cliques and tribes and being so concerned about what we have here against what they have here or I follow Pastor John and you follow Dave Kingma how dare you or you follow Pastor Corey from the Methodist Church or you follow that church and that's just like no like yes it's important for you to be a part of a local church, submitting to local governance, of which we just celebrated one and installed one today as an elder, Pete. But, but listen to me, this isn't an us against them. Together, locally and globally, we are one in Christ. And it's not about one over another or one church over another, any of that, or one teacher within our church over another. I want to hear less of John and more of this person or more of John and less of... No! We are not to fall into such cliques, but we are to be in love with the Jesus we serve in the body of Christ that we get to belong to both locally here at this level, CRC, but also the greater body that we are too a part of. Okay, differences are fine. We should have some differences and I'm not calling for uniformity here where we're all just like robots, like we're all the same, none of that. But unnecessary personality-driven self-righteous divisiveness is not okay. It's not okay. So as we walk away today and we step forward to the Lord's table, looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how can we fight against this, these factions and tribalism and disunity and these cliques? I wanna give us three quick focuses as we enter into communion, really quick here. Focus first on the fullness of Christ. Focus on the fullness of Christ. Verse 13 says, Paul writes, is Christ divided? Was, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
Paul is reminding the church with all of your divisions, with your tribalism, get back to the person of Christ. The body is not divided. If you have Christ, you have all of him. And he should have all of you. Focus on the fullness of Christ. I found myself a couple of weeks ago with friends. During a time of prayer, I was like praying that God, that I could, God, I want more of you. I want more of you. I want more of you. And this week in, in my study, really was last week, I was all of a sudden convicted by something I read because I'm thinking, I don't need more of him. He's given me all of him. He needs more of me. That's the shift that I need to be making in my own soul. Does he have more of me, all of me? And in that, I need to focus. And you, we, need to focus on the fullness of Christ. Secondly, focus on the cross of Christ, which is connected, so it's kind of like a sub-point to the first. Paul wrote, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No. You want to fix your attention on something? Fix it on the crucifixion of Christ. Fix your eyes on what his death brought you. It brought you and bought for you redemption. It brought you forgiveness. It brings you cleansing. It brings you adoption. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Cephas, not John, not anyone else, but Jesus alone. So whenever we get so focused on a personality or our tribes, take a step back and refocus your eyes on the beauty of Christ through the sacrifice of the cross that purchased your redemption. Thirdly, lastly, focus on the gospel of Christ. Paul wrote, we'll talk about this uh, next week, but 17 and 18 in 1 Corinthians 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are preaching, but to us who are being saved, it is the, this word power comes from the word that we translate dynamite. For us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the only hope for all of our divisiveness and cliques and tribes and everything else. The gospel unites us. The message of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and our response to that message being full surrender of self, confessing and turning away from our sin and collapsing ourselves completely, wholly on Christ is our only hope. Focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So maybe you have differences in baptism beliefs. Maybe you say it's got to be as an infant, or maybe you're more on the baptistic side of things, saying, no, it has to be at this time after profession of faith, then we baptize. Or maybe you have a proclivity towards one style of service over another. All of those things are good. Those are right. Those are fair. We should have strong convictions in them. But please, let it not cause divisiveness within you and other God-loving people who seek to serve Christ with all of their being. Let us walk together in things that should unite us, 
And may the world know more so what we're for than what we're against. I think right now it's so easy to be polarizing in our culture. It's easy for people to say, we know all the things the church hates, these people, and that's like, if we are living as Christ calls us to live, Jesus said at the end of John, I think it's John 17, but he said, people should know you're my disciples by your love for one another. So as the church, we're gonna continue to seek God. We're going to go where he's leading us and allow his glorious gospel to continue to be on display to as many people as possible. May he be our focus and may we tune our hearts into submitting all of ourselves to him as we unite together as one body in this morning at the Lord's table. May we come together under the fullness of Christ, the cross of Christ, and the gospel of Christ. And let no one break that up. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion? Father, I thank you. I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you that I get to belong to the body of Christ and we get to belong to the body of Christ. That this isn't a a beauty pageant or a popularity draw, but this is just the broken people of God who you have redeemed and who you have washed and cleansed from their sins, all coming together under one spirit and one savior, one Lord. Father, I I love your church. I thank you for your church. I thank you for this church. I thank you that I get to serve with them and serve them. And may we together grow. And Father, as we take of the bread and of the wine, may, may our hearts be in tune with what you have purchased for us. Your death on the cross and your blood spilled purchase our redemption, our salvation. May we be connected with you in a special way today through this visible sacrament. May it have spiritual implications deep within our soul. And may we also be connected in a special way with one another as a local body, as you would see fit. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we worship you, and you alone, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray, amen. We get to have communion this morning. And so, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you want to be a member here, we serve what is called open, open communion in the regards of you don't have to be a member, but we ask and we plead with you that you are a believer in Jesus, that you've trusted Jesus, that you've repented, turned from your sin unto salvation to the Lord. Um, we would love for you to take communion with us either way. Um, but if you're here and you're like, man, I'm just investigating this. I don't know, I don't know about this Jesus thing. Even you mentioned some things like resurrection, like I'm there, like I have no idea, and I'm just, I haven't submitted my heart to him. I'm not there yet, and I'm just investigating. One, we wanna say thank you for being here. Like, that takes a lot of courage to to come into a place like this. And we're excited to have you with us, Uh, but we ask at this time 
If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, we ask that you would just abstain from communion at this time, but we'd love to share more with you about this Jesus that we love and serve. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples and he broke bread and he gave thanks and he declared, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he declared, this is the blood of the new covenant, a new promise. As often as you drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. And so I'd like to invite our elders up. What, what we'll do is we'll get into two lines. If you've been here before, you kind of know how it goes. If not, I'm gonna invite just a minute. I'm gonna invite our worship team up first. Uh, they're gonna come up so they can be prepared to lead us in song after this. But after that, I'd love the people on the balcony to come on down. So elders who are gonna be serving communion, will you come on up? Uh, you will grab both of a piece of bread and we have gluten-free options at the corner and also a cup of juice. And if you could just wait, um, we will serve you uh, or we will rather take of it all together. So if you take your cup with you and the bread with you, just go back to your seat and then just spend some time praying and meditating on the cross of Christ, the fullness of Christ and the gospel of Christ. Now would you rise as we sing one last song before we dismiss.